This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We want to start the show with something that I really cannot believe is actually not banned everywhere. I had to kind of, and I'm sorry to anybody who looks after the internet filters here at work, because I had to do some research, and I'm pretty sure an alarm bell went off, because I had to type in the words, upskirt photo. That doesn't usually go over well. But I was not looking for upskirt photos. I did not look under images for these things. And I followed them up with a few other words. Banned in Germany. And it makes me wonder, okay, upskirt photos, which I had to figure out what that was first off. And it turns out some creepy people have really interesting ways of getting pictures of up the skirts of women. And they'll do it, you know, somebody will pretend to have a cane, and on the cane will actually be a camera. Remember that guy in this area with the backpack and the school, the teacher? Man, really? This is a thing? Can't you find better things to use up your time? Seriously. But the idea that they've been banned in Germany. Okay, good job, Germany. What about the rest of us? Why are these even... A thing. Well, joining us to help in the conversation is a phenomenal criminal lawyer, and you've heard her on 980 CFPL before, and you're about to hear from her right now. Angela Chason joins us. Angela, thanks so much for taking some time out for us. Yeah, thanks for covering this topic. It's really important. Well, definitely is, and it's one that I, I'm sad to have to have known more about, seriously. I mean, you don't want to even think that this stuff goes on, but obviously it does. And this particular ban actually goes beyond just these upskirt pictures and actually extends to a lot of what would be deemed inappropriate pictures. The people who decide to take pictures of victims in car crashes, who does mm-hmm. that? I mean, seriously, you wouldn't think that you would need any kind of legislation for this but angela obviously we do it's nice that you can say in the intro earlier mike that you didn't know what an upskirt picture was but unfortunately so many women do this problem is so common and i'll give you an example here in in toronto and ontario um the reported cases of voyeurism reported to police go up around 60% during the summer. So as soon as it gets warmer, as soon as we can start wearing skirts or dresses rather than pants, uh, this problem just skyrockets 60% higher during the summer, if you can believe it. And this this can't be an easy thing for people to get. You'd have to do it in some kind of covert way, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. So it's that uh, secretive part of it that's just so difficult, and it makes it especially difficult to prove in in court. But women can't leave their houses without being sexualized or preyed upon and violated. We need specific legislation. And you know what? We kind of look back, and I think all of us at some point have felt sorry for maybe a female celebrity who you catch as you walk through the grocery line on one of those kind of magazines where, oh, they've been caught on some beach somewhere, and somebody's taking a picture with a telescopic lens, and you think, man, that's that's tough. That's But I guess the price to pay for celebrity or however you justify it in your head— when you hear stuff like this, this has nothing to do with celebrity. This just has everything to do with walking out of your house and being female. 
absolutely. You can't walk down the street without being sexualized, violated, preyed upon. You know, the criminal law is really broad. The, the laws in there cover a lot of activities, but it just goes to show that when it comes to violence against women and when it comes to the exploitation of women, we need specific legislation because the problem is so pervasive. We're talking with criminal lawyer Angela Chason, and we're talking about upskirt pictures being banned in Germany, other kinds of inappropriate pictures like pictures of victims in car crashes being banned. So you say the legislation is broad. Is that simply because no one has taken that legislation and said, okay, we got to look at this again because the visual world, the world that we live in now where everybody takes 75 pictures a day on their phone, this has changed the landscape? You know, it's interesting. In Canada, we have voyeurism. Uh, it's a criminal offense. You can be imprisoned up to five years. But we define it as, you know, the stereotypish observation uh, or recording of somebody who's in the circumstances that give rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy. So that reasonable expectation of privacy is really important. Do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy on the beach, on the streetcar, on the subway, walking down the street? Traditionally, we thought of these sexualized photographs as something that happened in the bedroom, in private. And so it was easier to pinpoint the violation. But with people taking upskirt photos of women on the streetcar, do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy on the streetcar? You may not. And so the law has really struggled to keep up with this area. Isn't that interesting that you say, okay, if someone is taking a picture up somebody's skirt on the streetcar, and then you have to say... Maybe there isn't a reasonable expectation of privacy for that? Yeah, we're all photographed and uh, recorded on CCTV on public transit. And so the argument is, well, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Boy, okay. Now, you would think that that would be an easy fix because you could say, hey, you know, here's here's a picture of me getting onto the streetcar. Look, I'm hanging on to the metal pole. I'm taking my ride. Oh, there's I, look, I'm getting off. I had to wait for that person to go ahead of me. And then oh, wait a minute. There's a creepy person sitting right there and they're using their phone and look at the angle of the phone. They're taking a picture that could be deemed, deemed inappropriate. It, it should be that we could look at that and say, OK, that there's a difference between the the security camera footage and that guy and whatever he's doing. 100%. And what's interesting is in Germany, this was such a fight and it's taken years to really get this law into place. It shows that there, you know, you do need to have the political will to change the law. And the fact is, when it comes to women, a lot of people don't care. And we have policymakers and legislatures who are mostly men. So this issue may not even be on their radar. They look at that, yeah, and say, ah, that doesn't happen. Uh, And and you know what? Unless you actually do that thing where you type in the words into Google, you probably don't realize how predominant it is, because once you do that, yeah, you'd you'd wish you hadn't. And again, I I apologize to everybody here at Chorus Radio London for setting off any alarm bells that may have gone off, because I couldn't (laughs) believe the number of sites that popped up. We're talking with criminal lawyer Angela Chason, and we're talking about 
Germany banning things like upskirt pictures and other inappropriate photographs, which obviously opens up a big ambiguous pile of uh, of photos that that you would have to then determine what's real and, and what's not and what's appropriate and what's not. When it comes to one country having done this, can other countries then point to that legislation and say, okay, they've done it, they've done it this way. Does that maybe make it easier to introduce elsewhere? Absolutely. And we saw this with revenge pornography laws. We saw this as a something that caught fire sort of across the world, but it had to start with one country. And as soon as one country did it, other countries could look at that legislation and say, is this a problem here? And enact similar legislation, which we now have that legislation in Canada, which criminalizes revenge pornography. So this is something that Canada should also follow suit on, making it really clear in the law that this is not socially appropriate behavior and it needs to stop. How far do the punishments go for revenge pornography? That is a great Great question. The law in Canada was only really introduced in 2015, so we don't have a lot of jurisprudence on that issue, on what the punishments are. Uh, but they're tending to be quite, uh, quite more, quite a bit higher than people initially thought. Feminists, women who work with violence against women, were concerned that courts wouldn't take it seriously. And in fact, we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing uh, real punishments being dotted out for revenge pornography. Finally, if we look at maybe making changes to voyeurism in this country and maybe bringing about a little bit more protection for those who would be victimized by it, does it take a champion at the political level to say, hey, okay, I'm going to do this, and then they introduce the legislation, or can this come in any other way? It can come either through legislation, or it could also come through judicial interpretation of the voyeurism uh, provision, not to bore your audience too much, but there was a Supreme Court of Canada case, uh, R versus Jarvis, early, uh, a few years ago, which saw that reasonable expectation of privacy uh, viewed more contextually, not just saying you don't have reasonable expectation of privacy in a school where there are security cameras. They actually went into a deeper analysis. So, I mean, that's heartening, but the easiest way to do it is for politicians to step up. Angela, thank you so much for your insight on this and all the information you've given to us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. That is criminal lawyer Angela Chason. And we're talking, if you're just joining us, about Germany deciding, hey, let's let's kind of explore the number of photographs that are being taken out there. And let's look at some that are inappropriate. And let's ban pictures that you find that take pictures up women's skirts. I still, it's it's... Am I am I that naive that I didn't know that this kind of stuff was going on? I guess I'm happy to be that naive. Um, the other part of this is pictures of people in in crash sites, so victims in crash sites, people who may have lost their lives. Am I naive to think that people wouldn't really want those photographs? Again, I'm happy to be naive, thinking that that really wasn't a big deal. You know, maybe you have one weirdo. But you don't have anybody else doing things like that? Uh, obviously not. And again, I warn you if you Google it, because there are a lot of searches that come back on this. But 
it brings us to the question of reasonable expectation of privacy. And as much as we've just been dealing with a very serious issue, and that is, you know, the the kind of the inability of females to walk around and think that they're not being photographed by some creepy guy. And that's that's unfortunate. Uh, But let's face it. Let's be honest. That kind of thing does exist. This hour, what we could have done. How many times do we miss out on opportunities to learn something, especially when it goes back into history? Because you know what? Those who do not pay attention to history are doomed to repeat it. We've heard that over and over again. But as we look back into history, I think, you know, it's strange. We're told, we were talking about internet last hour, we're told when we're on the internet, to be very mindful of where a source comes from. If you find something that you think, I don't know, this this looks a little hard to believe, it probably is. And then you look at where the source comes from, who knows? You get to U.S. President Donald Trump's favorite line, fake news. And so you've got to watch out for that. But maybe we've got to do that looking back over history. And in fact, that's one of the things that we're going to be discussing. We're going to be in conversation with an author, Stephen Perowell, who is also a historian. He's just written a book called Duty, Honor, and Is At. And we're going to look at, at the opportunity missed in Don Cherry's comments for someone to step up. And that's maybe the opportunity we'll give to him and we'll all be able to learn. But the opportunity to step up and say, okay, you know, you want to know what was done that was not done by whether it's Canadian soldiers or Canadian-born soldiers, here's a bit of insight into that. And that's something that he is going to provide to us. So we'll look forward to that a little later on this hour. Uh, May get a chance to talk about Colin Kaepernick. I've got a Got a bit of a fear here. I don't know if you've heard. Colin Kaepernick, of course, has not been playing in the National Football League for a while. And Colin Kaepernick was a quarterback who led the San Francisco 49ers to a Super Bowl appearance and then was not standing for the anthem and ended up, that was it. He he was on the outs. No one has picked him up. He's been ignored. And now the National Football League has put out that he is going to have a tryout session And that tryout session is going to take place this weekend, and anybody can come, anybody can watch him. It's happening in Atlanta. But I've got a concern about this. How much of this is just window dressing? How much of this is appeasing someone who has been saying to the league, you need to do this? Because it feels like window dressing to me. And I don't think that's fair. And if this is being done to appease or make something go away or the next time someone is critical to be able to say, yeah, well, you know, we had a whole, you know, open session for anybody to come and watch and play. And obviously, hey, 32 teams, 10 who have had to use backup quarterbacks. Yeah, they, they weren't interested. I'm not buying that right now. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. We are going to, and you know what? Colin Kaepernick was was being himself at the time, and he was taking a stand that he believed in, 
And that's something that we're all going to see more of, courtesy of the London Public Library, when something called Celebrate Your Authentic Self arrives. And I want to welcome to London Live one of the most positive people, not in this area, but on the planet. Sidat joins us right now. Sidat, how are things? I'm good, Mike. How are you? I am fantastic. I can hear you smiling now. Aww. <laughs> Now, let's talk a little bit about what is being put together, because I want to trace this back. This is not just about, hey, you can bring the kids out to an event coming up this weekend. This is about what you have helped to create with the London Public Library. So if we were to ask you what Celebrate Your Authentic Self is all about, what do you point to first? Well, first, I I point at the community. London is a place where we are... um, working on learning to um, appreciate each other, um, celebrate all of our differences, and diversity is one thing that I celebrate every day. And being able to celebrate with the public library of um, the LGBTQ2 plus community is absolutely amazing. And having the youth have a day just to be able to know that there are many people who support them in London is incredible. So I'm, I'm thankful that the library is helping um, me put this on as well. So this is happening this Friday, which happens to be a PA day, PD day. What time does it start? Um, we're starting at 10 o'clock, 10 to 3 o'clock. Um, I will be teaching movement sessions. Um, we have some amazing people in the community that will help with um, um, creating cards, the Rainbow Card Project. Um, we have Ill at Will. Um, I have my friend Justin Preston, um, who has an organization called Rise Against Bullying. He's coming from Fort Erie to speak to the young people. He's also an ambassador for Kids Help Phone. So there's a lot of fun activities, the arts um, happening that you can get involved in. Okay, let's talk about the genesis of this and why you felt this was needed. Well, I feel like every person needs to have a safe space. And when you face discrimination on a daily basis based on either your race, a religion, sexual orientation, um, it can be discouraging. And especially for young people who are already struggling to um, discover who they truly are, when they're dealing with other stressors, it it can just make life overwhelming. And to be able to come to a place where you know you're not being judged, you're not being discriminated against, you're being celebrated, is something that we all need. And if we can start with our young people, they're going to pay that forward and be able to celebrate others. And so I just think it's such a wonderful day and it's such a wonderful space to do that. Um, You're going to find resources, material at the library that support the LGBTQ2 plus community, You're going to have people there that day as well that are supporting you. And then in turn, they can go out into the community and support each other. Sidat joining us right now on London Live as we talk about Celebrate Your Authentic Self. Sidat, you deal a lot with young people. Do you find that diversity is celebrated more than it's looked at maybe with a sideways glance among young people? Or are there still sideways glances? Oh, there are, there will always be sideways glances for sure. But I think what we have to do is just take one step at a time, one day at a time, bring more awareness 
that diversity needs to be celebrated. It needs to be acknowledged that people need to stand up for what's right and actually stand up for each other when they see um, people being discriminated against, when they, when they see racism, when they know that something's not right, it's time to stand up and stand up through your words, stand up with your actions and be able to support each other is, is what makes that difference. Is that something that you think kids are more willing to do maybe now? I believe they, they want to. And as, as adults, we need to continue to make that possible. And if we continue to have programs like these, they're going to, it's going to become a habit. Because when you're bringing awareness, sometimes people don't really see it every day. But when you continue to be consistent... And we celebrate diversity here in London. We believe that the LGBTQ2 plus community is important to us and we will stand with you. This, if it's consistent, that's when young people are going to know that we're not just putting on a show. We're not just trying to have that check mark. We really do want to celebrate each other. Do you believe it can start with kids or does it have to start with examples from adults? Well, you would think that the adults need to be the role models, right? But sometimes it will take a, the, the heart of a child to change the adults. So I think it's just going to take all of us <laughs> working together. I'm learning from the youth just as much as they're learning from me. What do you find you learn from them? Well, I learn to be open. <laughs> and as a 47-year-old, I have, I've had my own beliefs and mindsets that I've had to change and rewire my thinking for um, to be able to work with young people and understand that sometimes it's not my opinion that counts. Sometimes it's just that moment to listen, listen to what they're going through, listen to what's happening in the world around me and, and put my ideas aside and grow with the world. Well, it happens this Friday. Thanks so much for taking us through the creation of this. And it is something that is kind of new to London for sure. And it is called Celebrate Your Authentic Self. You said 10 o'clock Friday morning at the London Public Library? Yep, from 10 to 3, I'll be there. And um, we have so many great people, Illette Will, Justin Preston, Rainbow Card Project. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So come on out. Sidat, thanks so much for what you do. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. One of the most positive people out there and aiming, you know, to to go against that divisiveness. When we go back to Don Cherry's comments about whether it's wearing poppies or who was wearing poppies, or who he felt should be wearing poppies, the conversation quickly turned different corners. And it got to one about free speech. We need to rewind that. Run that right back. Because that's not where the conversation should have gone. And we're going to get some help right now from someone who has just written a book called Duty, Honor, and Is At. And... That someone is Stephen Perwell, and he's a, he's a historian and author. And what we could have done was we could have taken statements made by Don Cherry and said, wait a minute, that's not accurate. What, what, what is being said there by someone in a very public forum, that's not accurate. And Stephen is here to help us understand why. Stephen, thank you so much for being a part of London Live. How are you? 
I'm fine. Uh, thanks, Mike, for having me on the show. Well, thanks so much for being here because you made a great point that I think we need we need to scramble. We're, we're kind of falling down the hill a little bit. We need to scramble back up the hill just a little bit to think more about where all of this Don Cherry conversation began. What are you seeing happening and, and what do you wish we were focusing on? Well, ultimately, most people want to see... Um, you know, any, any soldier uh, uh, who sacrificed to be honored and to be remembered. I don't think that's the issue. The issue was the language that was used at the time. And unfortunately, it snowballed from there. And, and I say unfortunately because we are now getting away from the subject at hand. Um, and it's literally, it's about the poppy. Um, and if we think and we start to talk about the poppy, what we'll learn as Canadians is that there were, you know, there were many other ethnicities out there uh, in Flanders fields. But foremost amongst those, uh, for the Punjabis, uh, this is a great story. The poppy is something that is uh, intimately connected uh, with, with Punjabi heritage because the Punjabi Sikh soldiers in particular were fighting in Flanders fields alongside Canadian troops uh, and in fact were holding uh, the ground down in Flanders five months before even the, uh, you know, even before the Canadian Expeditionary Force set foot uh, on the French Northern Seaboard. So this story is a shared story, but it's getting overtaken by, you know, all the politics of the current situation. Now, in terms of connecting that aspect of Flanders Fields to the comments made by Don Cherry, and we can go back and we can play them, or, you know, the gist of it here is, you people, quote, you love your way of, or you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you can pay a couple of bucks for a poppy or something like that. These guys paid for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys paid the biggest price. How do you connect that? Well, when he talks about the biggest price, the Indian Army actually lost more men in the First World War, more than Canadians. The people that were paying the price, whose blood stains the poppies in Flanders fields, were from the Indian Army before they were ever Canadian Expeditionary Force soldiers. So it's an intimate part of the, you know, the heritage of a group of immigrants whose story is often distorted. Their identities are corrupted. And, and, and that's what we have here. Um, when we don't have the right dialogue and we're not talking about the topic in hand, uh, but we're talking about the politics instead, we lose this opportunity to correct this image, this stereotype that somehow immigrants uh, pay, you know, are unpatriotic. Uh, they have no connection with the sacrifices that went on uh, before them to build this country. Well, I would say, well, there is the, the fight, the, the Great War was called the fight for civilization. It was called the Great War for civilization. And what, you know, what, what is a bigger pillar than the parliamentary democracies and freedoms that we have? Well, the Indian troops were fighting for the same king, for the same crown. They were fighting under the same flag as Canadians. And you have to remember, in 1914, there was no such thing as Canadian citizenship. Everyone was British. And the, the Indian troops, as British citizens, upheld their obligations of that citizenship, but they never got the, the rights that went along with that citizenship in Canada. So that's the story that we need to tell, that people that have sacrificed, where does their story get lost? And I think Don had you know, a viewership that we need to reach out to.
We are talking right now with Stephen Perowell, who is a historian and author of Duty, Honor, and Izzet. As a historian, I'd love to know how frustrated you get by the fact that Canadian history, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to reach us as we make our way through the school system to the extent that it should. We talk about the fur trade, and then we kind of lose sight after Louis Riel, and and there are little smatterings here and there, but you're raising an issue that, yeah, we get an opportunity to dig back into, and we haven't, and chances are now the way that this story about Don Cherry has gone, we're not going to, but why do you think we don't have that grasp now for people who come through school? Well, it, it, so coming at the end of the First World War, when Borden returns uh, to Canada, he's a part of the war cabinet, obviously, um, but so are the Indians. And he's hearing day in, day out what the, you know, the Indian Army is doing, how it's holding down all the forts across all the theaters of war. He knows that, you know, the Indians were the only, the Punjabi community was the only, um, you know, ethnic community that actually stood in Flanders fields side by side with the CEF, um, you know, was exposed to the same gases and, you know, fell on the same line outside Eep, outside Kitchener's Wood. He knows all of this, but he doesn't, when he returns back, uh, to, to Canada and, you know, the, the Imperial War Cabinet, the Indian representatives uh, are asking for Canada to, uh, you know, lift um, the Continuous Voyage Act that's been put in place. They're asking, uh, you know, Borden to reinstate the vote that's been, uh, you know, South Asians have been stripped of the vote in 1907. Um, you know, when he's been asked for that, he's faced with a, a situation where if he does all of that, he basically acknowledges um, all the contributions and all the sacrifices um, as being on par with those of, the, you know, of the white Canadian troops. Um, and really, there's the white Canada policy in play in Canada. So he decides not to. And then that's the moment we lose our history in, 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 in Canada, and therefore the texts are never written um, you know, to reflect what actually happened in Flanders Fields, because it, it went against the grain of you know, South Asians being equal to you know, Caucasians uh, on the battlefields, and, and also as equal British citizens, they should be treated equally in Canada. That wasn't going to happen until you know, the 1970s. Boy, if he came back... And if he was able to, you know, create the opportunity for those texts to be written then, what do you think that might have done over the course of history in, in a revisionist way? Well, what, what it would have done specifically for the Punjabis is it would have removed uh, 70 years of this uh, uh, playbook of them, you know, being vilified as terrorists or, you know, unhygienic people, whatever, whatever the media decided at that time um, to, you know, to characterize these people in order to dehumanize them, um, you know, so that they, they would not have popular support from other British citizens. Um, it would have done away with all of that. So we would have less stereotypes to deal with. That baggage of stereotypes is what is the, fundamentally is the issue that we have in Canada. We don't know our neighbors. We rely on stereotypes. We don't know our neighbors because we've never written about them. We don't know what their values are. We don't know that they actually stand and believe in most of the values that other Canadians do. And, and, and when those stereotypes get in the way, uh, we all suffer. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that is taking on an, a sense of urgency right now, I feel. You just need to look south of the border. You need to look across to Europe. And, and you can see what happens when we don't have this cohesiveness this, uh, in, 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 our, in our societies and people start to ghettoize and live in silos because they don't feel welcome. 
Look at the divide that we have seen grow in some areas. And uh, I don't want that here. Do you want that here? We have it here, but I don't want it to grow. No, uh, we don't want it to grow. No Canadian wants it to grow. And unfortunately, by by removing uh, Don from his podium, we're kind of... Of losing that uh, the, the possibility of, uh, of that Damascus, the road to Damascus uh, moment, because if we were able to inform him, because he's clearly you know ignorant of these facts, and you know what he needed was to be informed and to correct himself uh, on the largest platform. I mean, I think that his program had probably the largest viewership in Canada. It certainly has uh, has had over the years. So, and that particular demographic that he has. That's exactly who we need to be speaking to. And, and, and if we can, instead of turning him into a martyr for, for the right, what we needed to do was to convert him. And, 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 and that's what we need to do with anybody that believes that immigrants are somehow, you know, in adherents of uh, barbaric cultural practices or are leeches. Uh, you know, th- that demographic needs to be told another story. How do we lose sight of the fact that we are all immigrants. Somehow we lose sight of that. Well, we lose sight of that because we don't tell the correct stories in our history books. Um, You know, we we establish a one dominant narrative, a Eurocentric narrative, and that Eurocentric narrative now divides people as to being either European-Canadian or they're not. And and that's where the loss is. If we actually go back and revisit the history, the Victorian period, the, you know, the mother of Confederation, Queen Victoria. Uh, some of her most favored troops were Sikh troops, were Punjabi troops. In fact, at the, at the apex of empire, uh, um, you know, Diamond Jubilee in London, um, after 50 years of, you know, building the, the, the largest empire on the planet um, and in history, she chooses the Punjabi cavalry as, the, her, as her honor guard. That's a token of respect. We have not had that same respect um, being offered in, um, you know, in, 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 in our history, um, you know, whether it's in the books, in the textbooks, uh, in our museums. And consequently, we have only, you know, in, in absence of that, we only have these negative dialogues, which are steeped in stereotypes. And, and that's our problem. Well, we are never too far down a hill to climb back up and learn something. I agree. I agree. And I think we need to scramble back up that hill, um, you know, urgently. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your perspective on this. And thank you for the education you have given to many of us. Because I have to tell you the truth, that's nothing that I ever ran into. It's nothing that I ever knew about. And the idea that... I'm I'm not surprised to hear that, Mike. You could be a history major coming out of, you know, the top universities in Canada. You wouldn't even know the Punjabis were in Flanders Field. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate the time, Stephen. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Stephen Pirawal, historian, author of Duty, Honor, and Is That. Just showing, and there are other examples that we could get to of veterans who would have been called immigrants at the time or veterans who would not have been called Canadians helping out in that way at that time because they they were not Canadian citizens at that time but the difference that it makes and then to have someone come back and write the history as if they were not even a part of it that's what we're dealing with here so that's the kind of stuff that we get to learn when conversations happen instead of finger pointing and uh, there's been a lot of finger pointing and side choosing the last couple of days there's some sort of rally for Don Cherry come on I really like Don in any dealing I've ever had with him, his generosity is, you know, is is as as great as anyone's. 
he's the nicest guy. He said these words, though, and that's where this goes back to. So it's not about choosing sides. It's not what this is about. But we were given the chance to learn, and thanks so much to Stephen Perwell for helping us to do that. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.